Okay, let me welcome you uh, back to the Pierce Directors Book Forum. So this is a series of lectures that we have over the course of the year uh, where we uh, highlight recent books by Princeton faculty working in the area of international uh, and regional studies. Uh, we've had several of them over the course of the year. Uh, we'll have a, a couple of more still left uh, this spring. Uh, today we have Helen Milner uh, to talk about her uh, recently published book, uh, Votes, Vetoes, and International Trade Agreements, with, uh, published together with, uh, together with Edward Mansfield. Uh, so Helen uh, is the B.C. Forbes uh, Professor of Politics and International Affairs here at Princeton. She directs the Niehaus Center uh, for Globalization and Governance as well uh, at, at the Woodrow Wilson School. Uh, she was chair of the politics department, uh, my boss, uh, for a number of years. Uh, in fact, was instrumental in hiring me. Uh, she's uh, written extensively on issues of international political economy, uh, on the connections between domestic politics and foreign policy, uh, globalization and, and regionalization, uh, and the relationship between democracy and trade policy. Uh, just to cite a few of her books, uh, she published a book, Resisting Protectionism, uh, in 1988, uh, Interests, Institutions, uh, in Information, Domestic Politics, and International Relations, uh, published in 1997, uh, The Political Economy of Economic Regionalism, which he co-edited also with uh, Edward Mansfield uh, in 1997, uh, Internationalization and Domestic Politics, which he uh, co-edited with Bob Cahane. Uh, so uh, it's our pleasure to hear about her most recent work today, uh, Votes, Vetoes, and International Trade Agreements. Um, Thanks, Mark. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, thank you all for coming. Um, I want to talk uh, a, a bit about the book, but try and set it in kind of a larger context for what's happening in the international trading system. Um, and uh, the, the, the key point that I kind of want to make is that the international trading system is changing, and it's changing very fast. And in part, this is because the world economy, I think, is changing very, very fast as well. Um, and I think many of you have uh, probably understand some of this. Um, the rise of China and other developing countries, as I'm going to show you in a minute, is, is having a big impact. Um, this is combined with a few other things. Uh, as, as some of you know, the international trading system is sort of governed by the international institution, the, the World Trade Organization, the WTO, which uh, was formed in the wake of the uh, GATT agreements um, a number of years ago. Um, and that, that institution is a large institution, a multilateral institution that has brought together virtually all the countries of the world. And it's had a series of rounds of negotiations um, since the end of World War II to lower trade barriers. Those have been very successful. Unfortunately, this last round that was launched um, a number of years ago, uh, the Doha round, has stalled. And countries have been able to uh, come to uh, an agreement um, on uh, how to move ahead with uh, international trade uh, negotiations. And so um, that, that failure and that stalling of that agreement is part of the changes, I think, that we're seeing going on. Um, another force that's changing is the way in which uh, production is organized uh, globally. And we've seen um, multinational corporations have been around for a long time, um, but the patterns in which they uh, produce and trade have changed dramatically. And increasingly, uh, multinationals are producing uh, in different locations uh, across the globe and then shipping their products all over 
um, and using uh, global trade as well as these different production networks to uh, fashion these very, very large uh, global networks um, that I think are having a major impact on the, on the way the world economy is organized. Um, this is a chart that I think uh, right away you can sort of see what's going on in the world. Um, so the, the bottom line is China. Um, and the green line on top is other developing countries. And what you can see is that from about 1990 on, there's a divergence that's really starting with the United States um, being less and less important in world trade. If you add the, um, if you add the China um, numbers uh, right here, which is now about 10% um, of world trade, to the uh, rest of the developing world, that's 35% of world trade is now the developing world. Um, and as you can see, um, the US is down now to around 10% of world trade um, from a very dominant position earlier on. So this is just part of uh, kind of what's going on. Um, <clears throat> what I also want to show you is that um, these trade agreements that I'm going to talk about are not just um, things that nobody cares about and you don't hear about. Um, this was the uh, front page of uh, the Financial Times uh, about a month ago. Um, talking about the big U.S.-EU uh, trade agreement that people are talking about. This is the New York Times front page um, about a month ago, uh, also talking about that trade agreement. This is the Wall Street Journal front page talking about um, that trade agreement. So um, while in your daily life trade may not seem to be all that important to you, it actually is uh, really important and uh, it, it uh, occupies now, I think, uh, front page news um, on many, in many of the papers. Um, so uh, in terms of uh, the world economy, again, um, trade accounts for about 60% of world GDP. Um, for the average country in the world, trade is roughly equal to its, um, its gross domestic product. So for most countries, not, not the United States, where trade is only about 30% of gross domestic product, but for most countries in the world, trade is an enormous uh, uh, aspect of, of their country um, and of that world economy. Um, trade is also a major engine of growth in the world economy, perhaps the major engine of growth uh, these days. We think that trade um, brings, in a sense, capital to uh, poor countries. It fosters innovation by um, bringing in new products and forcing companies to compete and upgrade their skills and their products. Um, and it also leads, uh, we believe, to much higher levels of productivity uh, in different economies. Um, this is just showing you in graphs what's been happening to, uh, again, world trade as a percentage of world GDP. What you'll see up there, that, uh, the dip at the top, that's the uh, global recession depression. It had a very big impact on trade, and trade is only now beginning to recover. Um, again, this is trade as an average for all countries of their GDP. Um, again, what you've been seeing is it's growing from 50% to 100% roughly over the last uh, 50 years, um, a very dramatic increase for most countries. Um, this is, again, change in growth. The blue line is uh, change in exports, and the red line is change in GDP. And this is just to make the point that this slide probably makes a little bit better, which is that average export growth, that is growth of trade, has been well above growth of, uh, of average GDP. Um, and this is since 2000. The previous graph you'll see is since 1970. So in terms of growth, in terms of major engines of growth in the world economy, trade has been um, uh, a key one. Um, 
international trade agreements, they're one aspect of these big changes that are going on. As I mentioned, the, uh, the big multilateral global uh, governance structure of the WTO has stalled. And in the wake of that stalling, um, countries have been signing these, it, these trade agreements with each other. Uh, and many of you come, probably have heard of these. Um, the European Union is one of them, and all the different uh, aspects of the European Union, uh, EFTA, um, and a number of its agreements with other developing countries, NAFTA, the United States, Canada, and Mexico, Mercosur, ASEAN, um, the South, Af South Africa uh, Development uh, Corporation, and the, tr the new one, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is now um, on the other side for the United States, uh, the Pacific side, the U.S. is trying to organize a trade agreement with uh, many of the Asian countries. These agreements are not multilateral. That is, they don't include all the countries in the world, and they're often exclusive in that only certain countries are asked to be in them. Um, they're, um, they're mutual in the sense that countries reciprocally agree to open up their markets to each other. They're not just one side opening its markets. Um, and they're not just regional. So there's some like uh, the U.S.-Israeli uh, free trade agreement, um, which obviously spans a number of different regions. Uh, these agreements are a good thing because they lower trade barriers across the world, uh, and they especially lower them between the partners to the agreement. They're not such a good thing because they allow discrimination. And um, that means that parties, countries that are not parties to these agreements do not benefit from these agreements. Uh, which makes them, um, uh, in, a, in, in a way, able to discriminate against these outside countries. So um, these, these agreements, these trade agreements, are important um, because they're a form of international cooperation, and they're allowing countries to liberalize uh, their, uh, uh, not only their trade, but also other aspects, their property rights and uh, investment, and to regulate their disputes, their economic disputes, um, and they've helped resist protectionism in the wake of the financial crisis and the stalling of the, the WTO round. Um, and this has been, a, I think, a very important aspect of these agreements uh, in the last 10 or 15 years, that they've been able to keep cooperation moving forward and that they've been able to allow countries to resist kind of protectionist pressures that might have grown uh, in the wake of uh, especially this, this last financial crisis. The, uh, what do we know about these agreements? Um, we know um, that they seem to be associated with a variety of things that we like. Um, one is that they're associated with less conflict among the countries that are involved in the agreements. Uh, we know that they're also associated with uh, countries that grow faster um, and with, that trade more with each other. Um, and uh, they seem to be uh, highly associated with um, uh, helping countries uh, protect their human rights um, as well as protect the environment. And in these areas, um, the trade agreements have been used as a form of linkage and a form of kind of threat so that when countries try and violate their human rights or do things to the environment that might affect other countries, uh, Countries have, have, have sort of invoked the trade agreements as a mechanism for um, threatening other countries and pushing them back from doing these things. Um, and they're also related to democracy, and I'm going to talk about this uh, a little bit more um, because it's related to uh, what, what we argue in the book. So um, these agreements um, take off. There, there were agreements uh, all throughout the, the uh, post-Second World War period. 
There was a period in the 1960s where developing countries signed a lot of these things. But really what happens is um, in the early 1990s, the, these agreements take off. And now there's some, um, uh, about 500 of these agreements have been signed. Some have been, uh, are defunct in the sense that they've been incorporated into other agreements. So there are roughly about uh, 350 of these in force now, uh, where a number of years ago there were very, very few. Um, almost every country, I think, in the world, I think the latest was that only Mongolia didn't have one of these agreements. And most countries have multiple agreements, um, and 13 is the average for, for each country. They cover a lot of issues beyond trade. They cover things like foreign investment. They often cover some issues um, related to the environment. They cover labor standards. They've gotten very long um, and very detailed. And they're a major way for, for countries to, um, in a sense, regulate a variety of different issues. Um, and a variety of different economic issues where they might have disputes. Uh, this has made um, people worry, uh, especially in the WTO, as you can imagine, which used to be the main sort of uh, center for governing trade, uh, worry about what these agreements are doing and what they signal. Uh, and people worry what they mean for world trade, what they mean for international cooperation, and what they mean for peace and conflict in the international system. And the, the real question is here, are, are these going to foster um, increasing trade and increasing growth uh, and uh, all globally around the world? Um, and, or are they going to foster the division of the world really into different blocks, uh, say an Asia block centered around China, uh, 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 an American block centered around the United States, and a European block centered around the EU? Um, or, and in that configuration, are those blocks going to be sort of mutually hostile toward one another? And there's been uh, concern about which direction um, these blocks are going to lead us. Um, so this is just a graph, uh, uh, again, of the uh, post-World War II period that shows you the number of countries in blue joining uh, these agreements. And as you see, that number um, jumps very dramatically starting in the late 1980s. Uh, the red line is the number of uh, uh, these agreements that have been formed uh, each year. And again, that number jumps in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. And then the green line just shows you the cumulative number of these agreements that have grown over time so that you can see, again, this, this dramatic change that's going on uh, in, the, in the world economy. Um, this is just to show you that uh, um, the, uh, over time, these agreements have moved from being um, very much regional agreements, like the European Union and NAFTA, to being cross-regional. Um, and we've got a lot of these, which is the cross-regional ones are the ones in blue, which have especially grown lightly. This is a map of the world that shows you these things have spread everywhere. Um, the, uh, uh, those in uh, yellow are uh, the ones with more than 20 of these agreements. The ones in kind of red are uh, 10, to, 10 to 19 of these agreements. And then all the way to uh, Mongolia up there um, with uh, no agreements, being the only country that has, uh, in a sense, resisted this. And um, these, again, are sort of this uh, average number of participants, uh, uh, you know, ha the average number of uh, agreements that each country is in. And what you can see is not only are countries signing these things, but they're signing multiple ones of these agreements. And this is just to show you that this has happened all over the world. Um, it's not just a European phenomenon, although Europe has been very involved in it. Um, so why, why are countries signing these agreements? 
and while it's been a widespread trend, this trend has um, had variation in it. So some countries started signing these earlier than other countries. Not all countries have signed a lot of them, and some countries have signed a lot of them. And the question we wanted to ask was, what, what leads countries to be interested in signing these agreements? Um, and what are the forces that are, that are driving countries toward these things? Um, and how can we explain, in a sense, this variance? And if you think about it, um, every year there's something like um, 100 and, uh, well, let's say, on average, there are about 200 countries in the world. Um, and those 200 countries could have signed an agreement, uh, each one with every other country, which would lead us to something like 20,000 different agreements. We don't have anywhere near 20,000 different agreements. So again, the world is not saturated with these agreements, but there are still about 350 of them, and we want to explain, in a sense, why we're seeing this pattern developing. Um, a lot of people, when you talk about these agreements, the first thing they say is, ah, well, it must be the economic gains. Countries are signing these because uh, they think they're, they're going to get lots of economic gains from them, more trade, more growth, um, all of those kinds of things. And if you read most of the economics literature on this, this is the, the main thing that the economists talk about. What are the economic gains um, that countries are going to get? The problem is if you actually look uh, at these agreements, as the economists have done, what you notice is that um, there are some gains, there is more trade, um, but it's not clear that there are a lot of gains for these countries from signing these agreements. Um, and it's, it seems kind of odd because for many of these agreements, there's a lot of contestation uh, around signing these agreements. And the question is, why would political leaders be willing to put up with a lot of kind of contest over these things if they're not bringing in um, those, uh, that many economic gains? And in terms of just the United States, um, the ratification of these trade agreements of NAFTA, of the uh, Caribbean uh, and, and Central American uh, agreements, have been some of the most contentious uh, bills in the, in the Senate that have, been, uh, that have been voted on in, in recent years. CAFTA passed the Senate by one vote. Um, it's really rare for any bill to pass the Senate by, by that small of a majority. Um, and it was very contentious. The recent South Korean-U.S. free trade agreement was also very contentious as well. Um, so the question is, why, why are political leaders, in a sense, um, pushing for these things? In a sense, why is Obama now pushing for both the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership and the EU partnership when he knows he's going to face a lot of political contest over this, especially if it's not clear that the gains economically are going to be that great? The argument we want to make in the book is that it's very much about politics, and it's about the political uh, aspect of these uh, agreements that, that leaders are interested in. Um, some of the other arguments that people have put forward that we're going to um, also look at are um, things about economic rivalry, that uh, uh, countries sign these agreements because they fear that other countries are signing them. Um, and they want to, in a sense, get on board. And you can think of this, uh, again, in terms of uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that the United States is now proposing, includes everybody in the uh, Asia region except China. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of, it may be obvious what, uh, what's going on there uh, in the case of the U.S. trying to kind of line up a series of allies uh, with, its, uh, with this agreement. Um, there's, uh, uh, again, political rivalry as well, which um, is worrisome 
because uh, if, if you have these blocks that form and that, form, that exclude other countries and that are directed against other countries, again, you worry that this kind of discrimination is going to lead and intensify rivalry in the world economy rather than uh, subdue it as it has in the past. Um, there are domestic uh, agreement reasons for these agreements as well. Um, uh, in particular, what people focus on is how multinational firms see these agreements. And again, as I mentioned, one of the big changes that we've seen in, in global production is these uh, global uh, production networks that multinationals have devised where they're um, producing parts of a good into all sorts of different countries and they ship the good around until it is finally assembled and then they uh, ship that final product uh, all around the world. Um, and many of you have probably seen the uh, iPhone uh, uh, YouTube story where the iPhone, the 500 different parts of the iPhone, they're made in you know, 500 different countries um, and then they're assembled and the iPhones are shipped all over the world. Um, and this is the kind of production network that you're seeing with many, many firms. When firms have that kind of a production network, they're very worried about protecting their ability to move those products all over the world uh, very freely and without a lot of trade barriers. And so the argument that people have made is that these agreements are um, foisted on countries by these multinationals um, and the pressure that multinationals are putting on governments uh, to do this, um, to protect these, these networks. Um, our argument is slightly different, um, in part because we find that many leaders in countries are not being pressed to do these things. Um, they're choosing to do them. And they're choosing to do them, we think, um, because they are allow leaders to, in a sense, send signals to their publics to reassure their publics and uh, multinationals and other groups within those publics, basically, that these political leaders are, in a sense, competent leaders, that they're running the economy in a, in a good way, um, and that they're doing things that aren't, um, in a sense, allowing special interest groups to get protection and therefore raise prices and, uh, uh, in a sense, hurt um, general consumers. Uh, and the political leaders want these agreements to reassure these publics about their behavior so that in bad economic times, they can point to these agreements and they can sort of say, look, I've signed these agreements, I've tied my hands, I can't give in to protectionist special interests that want me to do things for them, um, and I'm doing good things for the economy um, by doing this, and therefore, even if it's a bad time, you shouldn't vote against me um, because uh, uh, I've really done these things and the bad time is not my fault. Um, and we think, in a sense, that these agreements uh, send signals to the public that leaders aren't giving in to special interests and aren't responsible for some of the bad times that hit their economies. Um, and so that's the kind of argument that uh, we're offering uh, about this. Um, and and, and um, what we think is that if this argument is true, then leaders that are more subject to electoral pressures, that is leaders in democracies, are going to be more likely to sign these agreements. Again, it's political leaders wanting to reassure their publics, um, and they're wanting to do this because they want to win re-election. Uh, and in winning re-election, um, that's one of their main goals, uh, and, and in competitive political systems like democracies, these pressures are going to be much more strongly felt by leaders than in systems in which um, leaders are not replaced by publics and not through elections. 
Um, so the argument, the main argument of our book is that the more competitive political systems are and the more democratic they are, the more likely you are to see uh, leaders turning to these types of agreements. Um, and again, in the case of the uh, US-EU agreement, um, one of the reasons that Obama has talked about for signing this is again, it, it, he wants, you know, he believes it's going to improve economic growth in the United States. But he also, um, I think, is trying to signal that he's not giving in, in a, in a way, to special interest groups and other uh, uh, pressure groups uh, that may want him to, to close the economy and, and protect uh, uh, the U.S. economy, um, and that that would uh, put enormous costs on, on uh, the U.S. economy that uh, uh, otherwise uh, he might be able to avoid. Um, the problem is that um, these agreements, as I said, are politically contentious often. And there are groups that do want protectionism and that do want to be shielded from the international economy and that don't want to have to compete with imports. And they lobby very uh, often very hard in both Congress and the executive branch for protection. Um, and in democracies, these groups have access to political leaders through the Congress and the legislature um, that can allow them to, in a sense, try and stop the president from uh, uh, making these agreements if he wants. We call these, we call these groups usually uh, veto players in the sense that they're um, groups that are opposed to, what, uh, to these agreements and they have um, regularized access uh, to the political process so that they can block any kind of change, and usually this is through legislatures. This isn't just in the United States, this is um, pretty much all over the globe. And we think that the more likely, the more of these groups you have, the more of these veto plays you have in a country, uh, the more likely it is that the executive is going to be unable to um, make these agreements um, and, and pass these agreements through their legislatures or get, um, in, in a sense, uh, the groups that they need to, to agree to, to sign these. Um, so our main arguments are going to be um, about uh, democracy, uh, more democratic countries uh, being more willing to sign these agreements, and about um, uh, countries that have more veto players, on the other hand, being less able to sign these agreements. Uh, and we're going to use these two factors to explain, in a sense, the variance uh, in who signs and who doesn't. We're going to try and control for a lot of other factors that we think matter um, in, in all of this. And I'll talk a bit about those uh, uh, in a minute. But um, I'll skip sort of some of this stuff because it's kind of the more technical stuff. Um, we run lots of these regressions controlling for many, many things, looking at who signs these agreements. Um, but uh, this is just um, to show you uh, a chart of um, what happens when we um, run these models and we look at the impact of being more democratic. So on the bottom here, um, you have um, from a very autocratic regime to a very democratic regime. And here is the probability that you ratify one of these trade agreements. And what we see is that controlling for everything else in the model, where countries are, um, whether they have disputes with each other, whether they have uh, alliances with each other, um, a whole variety of things, um, that um, it's, it's a positive relationship, that as countries uh, become more democratic or um, for countries that are more democratic, they're much more likely to sign these agreements. Um, on the other hand, for these veto players, uh, the argument is, uh, is directly opposite. As countries have more and more veto groups in them, um, they're less and less likely to sign these agreements. 
And that's, again, holding constant all these other factors that may be affecting um, the kind of willingness to sign these, these agreements. Um, the, uh, it's very hard to establish kind of a causal relationship in these types of uh, uh, models that we have. And we know that all sorts of things um, are related to one another. Um, and so what we tried to do is to devise another, a series of other kind of arguments and hypotheses about if our argument was right, what should we see out there? Um, and we came up with about six of these. Um, and one of the things that we uh, thought um, was, was part of the follow-on from, from our story was that uh, democratic governments that sign these agreements and that sign more of them should last longer. Since our agreement is that when they sign, when democratic governments sign these things, publics are reassured, and when bad times hit, they are less likely to vote these, uh, these leaders out of office because they sort of understand that it's not, the bad times aren't so much due to what the leaders are doing. The leaders are pretty competent, um, but uh, it's just bad times that occurred for, for other reasons. Um, we also think that, um, in a sense, left-wing governments uh, versus right-wing governments are more likely to sign these things because um, publics are likely to think that left-wing governments are more likely to be protectionist, and therefore the left-wing governments will see this as a way, in a sense, of binding themselves and um, reassuring publics more strongly than for, perhaps for right-wing governments. Um, we also think that countries, uh, democracies that are more exposed to international trade are going to be more likely to sign these. Um, again, because trade is a very important aspect of, uh, uh, of their economies, um, these agreements are going to have a bigger impact on those economies, and it's going to make these leaders more likely to sign them. Um, we think that, again, um, much like with democracies where there's more political competition within countries that aren't democratic but have a bit more competition, um, they're going to be more likely to sign them, again, for the reasons that um, leaders are going to have more tenuous kind of hold over office, and so uh, more political competition is going to make them more eager to, to sign. And we think that the more democratic a country is, the, more, the deeper the level of integration that these, uh, these uh, agreements are going to um, lead to. Um, and finally, that the more veto players you have, the, the shallower that the, these agreements are going to be. Um, and we have an argument about delay because veto players, um, again, are going to mean that the executive has a much harder time passing these agreements and will have to spend a lot more time uh, uh, working on getting um, a coalition uh, to f in favor of, of, of their agreement. In the book, we go through all of these different kind of arguments and we try and provide evidence uh, uh, in favor or against these arguments. And we find a pretty substantial um, amount of evidence that, uh, that supports most of these. We think that that kind of allows us to um, better sort of pin down that it's, that it's our argument um, about why democratic leaders are doing this uh, rather than um, some other argument about why uh, countries might be signing these agreements. Um, the other factors that affect these agreements, um, so in looking through this argument, we're, we also try and control for a variety of other things that we think might influence why countries are doing this. So one of the things that matters is geography. And it matters curiously because um, it goes in two opposite directions. Countries that are very far apart tend not to sign these things. And you can well imagine, you know, Venezuela is unlikely to sign one of these with Uganda, right? Um, they're far apart. They don't trade a lot. Um, they don't have a lot of foreign relations. 
Um, on the other hand, um, you would think that contiguity, that is um, being right, you know, Brazil and Argentina having a contiguous border would be very likely to sign these things. Um, and we actually find that being too close, being contiguous often means you don't sign these things and that's usually because you're involved in some kind of dispute. Uh, most countries in the world are, have disputes with their neighbors of some sort and they're less likely to sign these agreements in part because uh, of those disputes. Um, again, a variety of economic factors are, are, are important for explaining these things. Um, richer countries uh, sign these things more. Countries that trade more sign these things more. These all seem to be pretty um, uh, obvious kind of arguments. Um, it's nice to find them in the, uh, uh, in the, in the, in the data. Um, one thing we, we recently found was that um, overall, um, when countries are not growing well, they, they tend to um, sign these things. Um, but uh, for democracies, um, downturns really help them, uh, uh, encourage them to sign them more. And we think this is part of, again, sort of shows part of our argument that uh, in bad times, um, democratic leaders become desperate for these types of agreements to, again, reassure publics that these bad times aren't due to their incompetence and their willingness to give in to special interests. Um, and again, you can see the, both the Trans-Pacific Partnership that Obama's proposing um, as well as the European partnership he's proposing um, as being part of this pattern of, of, of democratic countries trying in, in kind of bad economic times uh, to reassure publics that they're trying to do something um, and that they're not really responsible for um, the kind of economic downturn that's going on. We also find that contagion from neighbors is, is important. And the question there is whether it's kind of political rivalry or economic rivalry that drives these. Um, uh, uh, other factors, allies are more likely to sign these things, but countries that were once colonies uh, with one another are not. Um, and an interesting one is that uh, many people argue that um, these things are northern, rich northern countries pressing poor southern countries into trade agreements that benefit the rich northern countries. That's not at all what we find. In fact, we find very clear evidence that um, these are more likely to be signed between countries that are roughly equal rather than between countries that are um, very disparate in their kind of power. Um, and one reason we think that this is true is that um, the, the smaller or poorer countries understand very well that these can be sources of influence and they don't want to sign these things with much stronger and more powerful countries because they are uh, uh, means of exercising influence, and countries are, are sensitive to this. Um, we also find that a variety of things um, uh, affect, uh, uh, in, in terms of the global system, uh, again, declining American hegemony seems to have uh, pushed many of these things forward, and uh, the end of the Cold War seems to have pushed many of these things forward. Um, so let me just conclude by saying that um, the argument we're making really is that politics matters for these international economic agreements. That these international economic agreements then really matter for what the world economy looks like and for what world politics is likely to look like. Um, and so that domestic politics is, is a very important um, element of what's going to go on in the world economy and what we think of what's going to go on in, in world politics. Um, and again, um, that the, these domestic political uh, aspects, both democracy and veto players, are very important. Um, finally, uh, should we be worried about these agreements? 
Um, and here, I think it, it's, it's hard to tell at this point. Um, some of these agreements we think have been very helpful, and they've helped the, the world economy resist kind of a protectionist surge that might have occurred in the wake of the financial crisis. Um, they've been an engine um, for spurring foreign investment, uh, into, uh, especially into developing countries, and they've been, been a means of increasing trade among countries and, in a sense, um, helping to reduce kind of conflicts and disputes. On the other hand, um, if they keep going on and if they're used by countries, in a sense, to build blocks that exclude other countries and that are directed against other countries, they could well become a mechanism um, for increasing conflict in the, in the world economy and for fragmenting what we, the very larger global economy that we have now. Um, and so um, uh, there is a concern that the kind of uh, discrimination that these agreements exercise and the kind of leverage that they can um, bring to bear, both on members inside the agreement and on members and on non-members outside the agreement, um, could have uh, uh, detrimental effects. Um, and they may be replacing the uh, the multilateral system that we have of governance, the the, the World uh, Trade Organization, um, and that could be a good thing and it could be a bad thing. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see how the WTO which is trying to deal with these things and trying to regularize them and bring them into its orbit now, um, how it deals with them and whether it's able to actually kind of subsume all these agreements or whether these agreements, um, in a sense, push the, the WTO aside. So with that, let me stop. Thank you. Bob? No, so, um, you know, great questions. I mean, uh, on the trade blocks lead to war um, issue, I think things are a bit different than the 1930s. Um, and 
I think there are at least two or three things that are different. One are these global production networks that the multinationals now have. Um, and the fact that um, these multinationals are, are not just from the United States anymore, not just from Europe. Um, many of these multinationals now are coming out of the developing world. Um, and they're sort of knitting the globe together uh, in, these, in these production patterns. And um, it, there isn't sort of a country or a set of countries that are excluded as enemies. It's not like in the Cold War even where you have kind of East versus West. You've got this one global economy where you've got an enormous amount of, uh, uh, say, you know, take, take China, which you could say, right, that's the, the other side. Well, I think 70% of China's exports are from Western multinationals based in China. Um, so, so it's a, you know, to block China in a sense would be to block your own exports um, and to ruin your own multinationals uh, from the West. So that's, that's very different. The other thing that's different is that China itself is deeply integrated into the world economy, um, just like the United States is. So both trade, foreign investment, um, uh, China's uh, uh, capital flows, all of these things are, are deeply integrated into this, this world economy that is tied you know, directly into the United States and into the Euro European Union. And so again, it's very hard to break these things apart. Um, I think the third element that's kind of interesting um, that goes to the second point about this influence effect is note that countries have signed on average 13 of these things. And you might say to yourself, why are you signing so many of these things? Well, they're signing them with lots of different partners because they don't want to be dependent. And what is happening is um, when, when a country signs with the United States, usually its next move is to sign with the European Union. And then the next move is to try and you know, see what China's up to and if China will, will talk to them about some agreement. And so it's, uh, uh, again, um, the countries don't want to be locked into one kind of country that they're sort of dominated by. And the, the Latin Americans, I guess, are a great example because in the, you know, in the 1930s, these blocks, Latin America was just tightly integrated into the American economy. And while Latin America has globalized more now than it was in that interwar period, um, it's not as locked into the, the U.S. economy as it was. It's now heavily, um, uh, it's both, both Europe and China are playing big, big roles in, in, in Latin American economies these days. It's not just the United States, and, and these agreements have helped uh, in part to, to deal with some of that. So I think, there's, I, I think the world is uh, more complicated and, and, and quite a bit different, and I think it's going to be harder to, to kind of form these blocks um, uh, because countries all over the world are sort of so dependent and because multinationals have sort of knitted this world economy together uh, uh, so deeply in a way. Yeah, I mean, so um, in, in one of the earlier slides, um, 
there is actually uh, a, a group of people who do code the multinationals and kind of their free trade interests as an interest group. And they argue that those, that interest group is driving these kind of agreements. Um, we think that they're uh, important in these agreements, that if you didn't have that interest group, you, you, know, you would be less likely to have uh, these types of uh, agreements. Um, but that uh, uh, they're not the only thing that's driving them. Um, and political leaders, in a sense, uh, sense that um, uh, you know, there are now sort of two sides to this. And it's, much, it, it's easier for them, in a way, to avoid being captured by protectionists um, and you could say, well, then, then they're captured by these free trade interests. Um, yeah, uh, you know, um, there's, there's part of the story is probably about that as well. Uh, although some of these agreements, it's very hard um, to even see, uh, like the U.S.-Jordan, it's very hard to see what, you know, U.S. multinationals is being really, really interested in the Jordanian market. Um, and again, I mean, there are a variety of different reasons for, for those kinds of agreements. Christina. Yeah, so, so the first question, so one argument that could be made is that political leaders do these things because they think they're going to get huge economic benefits from them, and that's going to keep them sort of in office for longer. Um, we don't think it's actually that because we don't, many people don't see these huge economic benefits from these things. We think it's more of a signal, uh, again, about a leader's competence and his intentions um, and uh, again, sort of giving into special interests um, that want protectionism, which is, is likely to sort of slow the economy down. Um, so, so again, it's a slightly different argument than the one that relies on, on economic gains from these, these agreements, because again, we just don't see those, those gains there. Um, and again, if you, look at, uh, 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 if you look at leadership duration, which is one of the things we do, and you put in economic factors, and you put in signing these agreements, both of those things have an effect. So it's not as if it's just through the economic channel that leaders are, in a sense, benefiting from these agreements. Um, so we think it's more this story about, uh, in a sense, reassurance um, and signaling. Um, why, the 19, why the early 1990s? Um, I think there are a whole series of, of things going on in the, the Cold War, the end of the Cold War being one of them. And clearly, you know, my answer to Bob, I mean, it's, it's sort of the breakup of the blocks and the, the creation of this, you know, one world, as, uh, as people have called it, that, that, that I think starts pushing countries toward this. And then a lot more countries become democratic. 
and that also leads to, to some of the pressures uh, for these agreements. I think the, the, the WTO, right, um, you know, 94 is sort of when, when, when you, you know, the WTO starts, um, and you start having problems right away with the Doha round and people seeing that it's going to be very different this time because while it's called a development round, um, the developing countries aren't always on board. And so, and the interesting thing is, it's we find the WTO to be po- to be a positive influence on these agreements. If you're a member, you're more likely to sign these things. Um, and in some ways, we think that's an indication that these countries are looking for alternatives to the WTO, kind of knowing that it's it's likely to have stalled. Um, so, so I think it's it's kind of a complicated story about what's going on. So, you had a question in back. Yeah, so um, my take on the, the problem with the Doha round is that um, the issues, it's not just about trade anymore, right? There are a whole series of issues about investment, about um, property rights, um, uh, about dispute settlement. Um, they're a very complicated set of issues that uh, affect countries' policies in a lot of different areas. Um, and so the package has become much more complicated to negotiate over time. Plus, it's not, it used to be that the U.S. and the, the Americans could sort of agree on a package and then everybody else got pressured to follow along. The problem is the U.S. and the Europeans, as that one graph I showed you, they're no longer kind of super dominant in the world economy. You've now got the Chinese, you've got other developing countries, you've got Brazil, you've got India, and they have a whole series of different interests. Um, and it's much harder to make an agreement when you've got 20 important countries rather than, say, two. Um, and you're seeing this in all sorts of uh, realms, right? This is the same problem for the environmental agreements and, and climate change agreements. Um, it's not just that you have two countries anymore that tend to dominate. It's that you've got at least 20 countries, if not more. Um, and so it becomes very hard to have an agreement. And then you add the fact that there are all these different issues uh, where countries have all these different positions, and it becomes really, really complicated, I think. Um, again, for some of these domestic political reasons. So. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know. I don't have much hope about the Doha round succeeding, unfortunately. Um, and I think that's probably too bad. Uh, and then it raises the whole question of what happens to the WTO in the future. Um, so, yeah? Yeah, so we use, um, I can actually go back. Um, we use this uh, measure that somebody else has actually um, designed, this one here. And, and what, they, what they've done is they've looked across the world um, uh, over time, and they've asked, um, in a sense, this question of uh, what groups can block the executive um, from sort of making a law or changing a policy. Um, and in democratic countries, the answer to that um, is to look at the legislature and to see um, how many parties there are in the legislature, which is more veto players, and then whether the um, majority uh, coalition is the same as the president's or the prime minister's coalition or whether it's different, and then how much it differs. 
And so for every step in that, for more parties, um, uh, parties different from the executives, the veto number of veto players increases. So this isn't a measure specific to trade. It's really uh, specific to each country and each year, and it focuses on parties and the, and the legislature and differences from the executive. Um, most autocracies have legislatures, and so they look at some of those things, but they're all very close to zero, the autocracies. So this measure varies um, substantially with the democracy measure, but within democracies it varies quite significantly. Um, so you get a lot of variance in, in, within the democracies. Um, you know, anecdotally, I, I, I think uh, most of the leaders outside the Western world, they are very upskilled politically, but I don't think they understand economic, long-term economic implications. That's my anecdotal observation. And in a situation where they are uh, faced with some, uh, with, a, with a troubling election coming up, they, are, they tend to think, Yeah. I mean, in terms of veto players, um, I don't think there's any single trend, at least over the longer period we've looked at. I haven't looked at the last 10 or 15 years. It might be interesting to do that. Um, in terms of our findings, though, we actually um, uh, uh, find that, um, you know, in these downturns, countries do sort of uh, try and turn to this, especially democracies, and we think that's kind of part of the argument that, that leaders are looking for, in a sense, a way of reassuring these publics, especially in those downturns, because they know they're probably going to be punished electorally. Right. Um, well, I mean, the, the data don't show that's happening, so that it might be what they think, but it's not what's happening. Money. Thank you so much. So I have two questions. First is about this Cold War issue. And it strikes me that there might be a democratic transition going on after the Cold War. So that what you're capturing is basically countries were naturally moving towards democracy anyhow. And after the Cold War, we were going to have these coupes anyhow. And you're capturing this strong correlation. So my question is, did you look, did you do kind of a regression discontinuity where you looked at countries before the Cold War, countries after the Cold War, and see how democracy was shaping those outcomes that way. Um, so just 
just seems that something, a lot of this is driven, being driven by Cold War, the post-Cold War period. The second part of the, my question is, a lot of your theory states the demand, on, on the demand side, that countries are seeking the PPAs, but very little been said about the supply side of the PPAs. And in other words, are, is the US, is China, is Europe willing to, to, to have these PPAs with smaller countries? So when you look at the dyads, I was wondering if you, if you like kind of clustered them around north-north relations, north-south relations, and south-south relations, and whether you find similar trends. Hmm. Um, so the Cold War one, um, I, we did you know, break the sample up in the periods, and uh, I, I don't remember it changing the results at all. So I think you still find some of this, um, you know, even in the earlier Cold War, uh, in the Cold War period, you find the democracies are more likely to sign these agreements. We also ran these um, systemic models, which um, just look at the number of agreements that are being signed per year um, relative to the number of democracies in the world that year, relative to whether you're in the Cold War or not in the Cold War. And there again, we find really strong evidence that holding whether you're in the Cold War or not constant, the more democracies in any year, the more likely, the more of these agreements you're going to sign. So it, it seems as if you can sort of disentangle the Cold War and the democracy effect. Um, but it's clear that, that after, that after you know, uh, the end of the Cold War, these things are, are taking off. But I think, again, as I said, I think there are other reasons in addition to, to, to sort of the democracy angle. Um, but but uh, it, it clearly, they are clearly related to one another. Um, the, the, the supply side, so again, um, what we're doing here is really looking at, at each country and asking for each country um, what are they, you know, how does ratification occur, occur for each country? So in a sense, we're looking at both the demand and supply side. Um, so the U.S. has to negotiate with the EU, right? And in the models, one observation is the U.S. that year and one observation is the EU that year. Um, so that is sort of getting it at both sides. Um, and it's not... I mean, these negotiations occur just between the countries. It's not like they're occurring with some third party. So I don't know whether that answers your question, but it, we're looking at it in effect at both sides, both parties to the agreement separately, and asking about their individual characteristics and then their relations with other, uh, with other uh, countries in the sample, in a sense. Um, yeah, so, so different signals in autocracies and democracies. Um, our, our view of many autocracies is that they're heavily dominated by groups that are protectionist, in part because they're state-owned, and in part because they tend, because they're state-owned, not to be terribly competitive on world markets. And so in these autocracies, one of the reasons why you're not seeing autocrats doing this stuff is they have these uh, support coalitions that are made up of these state-owned enterprises 
uh, and the workers in state-owned enterprises, and none of them are eager for openness. And the autocrat does not want to disturb that support coalition. And so you're not getting the, the kind of pressure you are in a democracy for kind of this sending this signal of reassurance. Um, in terms of state-owned, um, we looked at um, the communist countries, and, and we tried to do a little bit on um, state ownership of the indust of industry. Um, we didn't find too much. Again, the, the problem is that there's a huge overlap between state ownership and autocracy. And so it's very hard to separate those two things out. Um, and light, you know, rightly so, because I think autocrats <laughs> you know, uh, own part of the economy so they can build support and keep control over things. And so it's, a, it's very difficult to, to separate those, those two out. And it offers a, a cheap market. And there's a kind of comp isn't there a complementarity <coughs> uh, motivation in a, a number of these trade agreements between economic weakness and economic strength? Yeah. So um, it's clear that some of these agreements do pair um, countries that are not um, you know of equal kind of capacity. But the, the interesting thing is that, on average, um, uh, when you look at these uh, agreements, they're more likely to, to actually occur between countries that are roughly equal. Um, so while you can find instances where there is this inequality, you also find a lot of instances where there aren't. And I mean, I guess many of the European agreements, um, you know, now we, we sort of look at Europe and we say, oh, well, yeah, there's this weak southern tier and there's this strong northern tier. But it, you know, it hasn't always been the case. I mean, Italy is the third largest economy in, in, in the EU, um, and, and Spain is, I, I don't know, fourth or something. So it's, uh, while we now think of them as weak, um, when you actually sort of look at them, they actually look like it's, it's pretty, pretty equal among those countries. And if you look at some of the agreements in Africa, um, many of those countries are very kind of uh, complementary to one another at, uh, in terms of being roughly similarly sized. So, uh, um, you know, again, we, we kind of think that countries are not unaware of the, the kind of influence dimensions that these might, might bring. Um, and that some countries choose to do that. Uh, you know, the Canadians and the Mexicans obviously did. Um, I don't think, uh, you know, I don't know uh, if the Canadians regret it, the Mexicans may regret it, um, but they didn't have to, you know, um, it's probably better for them than, than not having it, I, I think, in some ways, economically at least. Uh, my question is about the point that Professor Davis raised, and uh, I wonder if uh, the mechanism behind this is that leaders are actually responsive to public opinion and looking at public support for free trade, or if they're just trying to look busy. Like, whether or not, like, you know, Obama is looking at public opinion going and thinking, you know, the American people really want free trade, or if it's, you know, the day of the, the union address is coming up soon, not to get this something right. You know, which mechanism is really at play here? I guess the only way you could test that would be to see whether or not the number of uh, agreements a country signs in any given year is correlated with um, varying levels of public opinion towards free trade. Yeah, I mean, and that's something uh, that uh, you know we haven't done, um, and that would be pretty hard to do because countries aren't sort of doing public opinion polls every year uh, when they're signing these things. Um, 
the, the, I guess the one thing that makes us kind of think that it's not just sort of looking busy is that these things do seem to have an effect on uh, longevity of uh, leaders in office. So if it was just busy work, I, I'm not sure that would translate into this, uh, this effect. Um, so we, we think it does have some kind of real impact on, on leaders' uh, ability to stay in office. Uh, again, you can debate exactly the causal pathway for that. Uh, we sort of thought that by teasing out all these different kind of mechanisms um, and hypotheses that we could narrow it down to, 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 to what we were trying to, to argue. Yeah, I mean, do leaders actually say, look, I, you know, I passed NAFTA and therefore you should reelect me or I'm, you know, I'm negotiating the uh, Pacific Trade Agreement and therefore you should reelect me? Uh, because I'm just yeah. wondering, uh, because whether this is as salient an issue as you're kind of making it out to be, you do find this correlation between whether they're reelected or their longevity and power and whether they actually engage in it. I mean, one alternative explanation of that might be that leaders that feel more comfortable in their power and are less, I mean, in fact, you're kind of finding that with your eco points, that they're more likely to, that, that is that they're less subject to being challenged in their power, are more likely to engage in this because uh, I don't really see this as an issue that people are actually actively going out and campaigning and whipping up public support around. But the last, the, the other question I'd like you to answer uh, is why Mongolia, which you threw out there. <laughs> I mean, as you may or may not know, Mongolia actually has had a major economic boom in the yeah, last years. With I mean, it's, minerals, it, was, yeah. it is the hot spot. I know yeah. lots of people yeah. who were moving from Russia and from Eastern Europe to Mongolia because it was really developing. And yet, uh, they are steadfast and not engaging. So tell what, what, what was well, happening I'm in Mongolia? <laughs> <laughs> the public support agreement. Um, so I, I'm not sure that you know we've really found leaders going out there and saying, oh, you know, vote for me because I signed Mercosur. But on the other hand, when political leaders talk about their record in the context of campaigns, they often mention these things, and especially outside the United States. Um, again, we sort of collected up a lot of public opinion evidence of what um, publics in, say, Latin America and, and Africa um, and, the, and Europe think of these agreements. Um, and, and on balance, you know, 60 or 70 percent are, are in favor of them. Um, and leaders do, when they're talking about their records, do mention what they're doing in terms of these agreements. Now you see a lot of, you know, in Europe and Britain, right, you see a lot of like, let's get out of the EU kind of discussions and things like that. And um, so there is, there obviously are forces that, that don't like these agreements. Um, but it seems as if um, leaders aren't hiding these things. And certainly the fact that Obama's got all this stuff on the front page when he's a Democrat and, um, right, Labor's not enthusiastic about these agreements suggests that something is going on about so who, him. Who would vote for Obama? Um, well, it's interesting that um, the largest car exporter in the United States is BMW. The largest car exporter in the United States is not GM, is not Ford, is not Chrysler, it is BMW, a German firm. BMW produces in South Carolina. South Carolina is not a natural state for Obama support. I would bet that he'll get more support, well, he can't run again, 
But I would bet that he would have gotten more support from South Carolina after this agreement, uh, if it goes through, than he would have otherwise. So, um, you know. So it's tied with the specific interests that seem to benefit precisely from this well, I mean, that's, that's the most, that's the clearest way I can pinpoint it. I mean, I would think that it's less, because it's less tied to these economic benefits, I think at the end of the day, um, what he would hope for is that he could appeal to people and basically say, look, I signed this agreement. It's really good for the American economy. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to do good things. And, you know, I'm a competent leader because I signed this and made this agreement. Um, and, you know, you should vote for me because I'm a good, competent leader. And I'm not giving in to, you know, narrow labor interests that want protectionism or the footwear industry that wants protectionism or these other kinds of things. Um, and why Mongolia? I don't know. I think they're actually in the midst of negotiating an agreement now with somebody. <laughs> I think they've caught on too. But, uh, 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 yeah, um, you know. They're, they're not the most autocratic. And they're no, no. No, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's it's like an interesting puzzle. <laughs> could, I, could I take a slightly different tack? Not necessarily using it to get elected, but rather using it to change the dialogue on, on unpopular domestic issues. I'm, I'm reminded of Richard Nixon's rapprochement with China almost at the height of the time that Watergate was bubbling up and you know, nuclear agreements with Russia and Yeah, although, I mean, the interesting thing is I think that there are groups within the Democratic kind of, you know, support coalition that don't like these agreements um, and that he is running a risk, again, of, in a sense, you know, annoying them um, to appeal to what he thinks is a much larger audience that looks at this as a sign of competence and a sign of good leadership. Um, and I, I think that's the gamble that he's kind of taking in these agreements. And he's also hoping it does help the American economy. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't think he thinks it's going to hurt it. Um, but his exact motivations, I don't know. I mean, we'll have to see when he leaves office, right, and hopefully writes about this. And, you know, we can kind of understand better why he's, he's doing these things. Well, thanks. This has been a fascinating discussion. It seems like a great book. I hope you'll all go out and read it if you haven't read it already. <laughs> uh, and thanks a lot. Thanks, Mark.